two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place which is called the Skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Well, I've been asked to reflect on the rejection of Jesus Christ by one of the two thieves crucified alongside him. But before I do that, I'd like to edify you a little bit on the horror of crucifixion. Execution by crucifixion became common under the rule of Alexander the Great. The Romans got a hold of the idea of crucifixion from the Phoenicians during the Punic Wars. These were three separate wars fought between Rome and Carthage during the years 264 B.C. to 146 B.C. By the end of that third war, after more than 100 years and the loss of hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides, Rome captured Carthage's empire, destroyed the city, and became the most powerful state in the western Mediterranean. The Romans took this idea of crucifixion to a new level, becoming experts experts at this most horrific method of execution, which was reserved for the lower classes of the empire. Death was not designed for Roman citizens, but the subjects of the empire as a vicious deterrent to crime. Once you were condemned, you were first scourged, which meant you were stripped of your clothing and your hands were tied to a post above your head. The Roman legionnaire would use a flagrum. That was a short whip of several heavy leather thongs with two smalls of lead attached to the ends of each. As the heavy thongs cut through the skin, the blows would cut deeper into the body's tissue, eventually causing rupture and spurting of the arteries. The small balls would produce deep bruising, which would eventually also break open with each subsequent blow. Once it was determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner was near death, the beating would stop. However, many were known to die from the severity of the punishment, so severe were the wounds inflicted. Those that lived were then made to carry the heavy crossbeam, which weighed about 100 pounds, tied across the shoulders in somewhat of a death march. <coughs> Excuse me. There were different ways of fixing a condemned man to a cross. One way was on a cross built more like the letter T, with the cross beam sitting on top of the upright. The condemned man was bound or nailed to the patibulum or the cross beam, and then heaved up by ropes to the upright, which was already fixed to the ground. Another way, commonly known as the Latin cross, like the one behind me, was to put the cross together on the ground, then bind and nail the condemned to the cross and drop it into a ready-made hole to prop it up. Other forms were in the shape of the letter X and the letter Y. A footrest was most likely attached to the cross, perhaps for the purpose of taking some of the weight off the wrists. The humiliation was furthered by their clothes being taken from them. You were completely and utterly exposed on the cross. 
Crucifixion was a very public method of execution. Passers-by, along with the soldiers in charge, would frequently curse and torment the criminals. The reason that the condemned was being crucified was written and fixed to the cross above their heads. They were left there to die a slow and agonizing death from exhaustion, thirst, and the wounds from the scourging. The criminals would most likely be cursing and spitting on the tormentors as a humiliation of urinating on those same uh, tormentors was unavoidable. Often a very small amount of drugged wine would be offered to the condemned prior to nailing the man as a way to dull the pain. But the physical effects of crucifixion were horrific, an extremely agonizing way to die. The unnatural position of the body made every movement painful. The suspension of the body on jagged iron nails driven through sensitive nerve centers of the wrist and the ankles ensured constant agonizing torture. The wounds from the nailings could become inflamed and possibly gangrenous. The body's position hindered circulation and caused indescribable pain in the chest. A raging thirst would set in due to the loss of fluids from the wounds of the scourging and from sweat. There were most likely flies and other insects constant around the victims. It was truly a terrible way to die. When the torture was deemed to have lasted long enough and in order to speed up death, the soldiers would break the condemned man's legs so that he could no longer hold himself up, and then he would quickly die of asphyxiation. I would argue that Jesus is the most famous person who ever lived. The crucifixion of Jesus certainly changed the course of world history. Does anyone here think for a moment that it was coincidental for two thieves to be crucified alongside Jesus? Why would convicted felons be the last people on earth to consort with the Lord? This was no accident, and it was part of God's plan. Not much is said about these two thieves. They could have been robbers as much as murderers. One of them rejected Jesus by saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now, we don't know which one said that. But perhaps there is a hint. you probably correct me. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 and 33. As Matthew writes about the judgment at the end of the tribulation period. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a sh- uh, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. So for tonight, we'll presume that the unrepentant thief was on the left. Of course, this thief probably didn't believe that Jesus could save Himself. We know from Matthew chapter 24, verse four, uh, chapter 27, verse 44, that this thief was just taunting Jesus like everybody else was. He certainly was not concerned about Jesus. He was concerned about himself, which is the greatest concern of most sinners or people who don't know Christ. After the thief died, perhaps a couple of hours after Jesus did, maybe longer, he was rendered into hell. He had the same opportunity as the other condemned man, but only one had a change of heart. Here he was, 
on the left side of Jesus, closer to the Son of God than I am to you. He had an opportunity to repent and turn to the Savior for forgiveness and eternal life. But he hardened his heart, refused to repent, and died unsaved without hope forever. Why did this man fail to believe? He must have heard the miraculous things that Jesus had done. Apparently, he was only interested in himself. The, thir- the circumstances of the thieves were very similar. Both were being crucified. Both were wicked men. Both were most likely very angry. And both were writhing at that moment in continuous and excruciating pain. Why did only one of them have a change of heart? And why did the other remain the same? As I began to read and do my research on this meditation, I came to realize that the thief that rejected Christ is symbolic of the world today. There are those that accept the promise of Jesus, but many more don't. You know, Jesus didn't respond to the unrepentant thief. He gave him up to his own destruction. It is the cross of this unrepentant thief that symbolizes all those who reject Christ, then and now. Imagine those who reject Christ and choose to spend an eternity in hell, even though the cross that saves stands as close as an arm's length away. The Bible tells us the people that come right up to the throne of grace, yet fail to take part in His promise are common people like you and me. People from all walks of life. And when people put down or make fun of the Christian faith, they are no different than this unrepentant thief. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever cried out against Him in disappointment? If you have, you aren't alone. When something bad happens to us, it's almost a gut reaction to want to put God on trial. The instinct to accuse God is strong. How many times have you challenged the wisdom of God during a difficult period in your life? We must, however, be careful in that if we keep neglecting God's grace and mercy, there will come a time when the Spirit of God ceases living within us. I believe most people are more like the unrepentant thief. They mock God, tell jokes about Him, use God's name in vain in their speech. Those that half-heartedly say they believe, treat Him lightly. They believe that everyone who dies as a good person goes to heaven. The rejection of Christ is often not so much of the mind, but of the will. Not so much I can't, but I won't. It is a matter of will. Often people refuse to accept Christ because they'll have to stop committing that sin that they don't want to stop. To find God and accept Jesus would be a very inconvenient experience because it involves rethinking their whole outlook on life. But we do not find because we do not seek. And we do not seek because we do not want to find. I read that quote in a book Father Jose gave me, and it had a really strong impact on me and helped me under, under, understand somewhat better why some people reject Jesus. So I'd like to repeat the quote. We do not find because we do not seek. 
We do not seek because we do not want to find. The decision to accept or reject Jesus as Savior is the ultimate life decision. So why do so many people choose to reject Jesus as Savior? Here's a few examples. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, some people don't think they need a Savior. What they forget is that they consider themselves to be basically good and don't realize that they are sinners and that they cannot go to God on their own terms. There's also the fear of social rejection. Unbelievers would not confess to Christ because they're more concerned about their status with their peers than they are of doing God's will. And for others, the things that the present world has to offer is more appealing than eternal things. To accept Jesus, there must be a willingness to believe. Many discount the written records concerning Christ and his resurrection. They say there is no positive proof the Gospels are accurate. No way to even know Christ is alive. Yet these same people accept without question what is written by or about Plato, Socrates, Caesar, among many others. I would say to you that if God doesn't exist, life would be meaningless, hopeless, and without purpose. If God does exist and you accept the Lord as your Savior, then life has meaning. It doesn't make sense to me to prefer futility and destruction to a meaningful and happy life. An eternal life with God is a gift from God. To be with Christ in heaven is the ultimate. The time to repent is not when death arrives. The time to repent is now, when the Holy Spirit reveals our sins and grants us the grace and opportunity to repent. At some point in our lives, there is a choice each one of us has to make. It may be on the left, it may be on the right, but it all depends on the center cross. I'll leave you something to think about. Jesus is the meaning of certainty. Will you proudly reject him or embrace him? On which side of the cross are you?